Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Today I have with me Angie Sansuzzi, and she is a leadership coach, speaker, and trainer. She is an executive director and disc consultant with the John Maxwell team and is a certified knowledge broker by Tony Robbins and Dean Graziosi. Her passion for serving women and leadership comes from her own personal journey of starting in a place of survival, then going to thriving. Her belief is that everyone simultaneously has a story to share and a story they're writing. And it is with great joy that she can help women be empowered through taking control of both. When Angie isn't working with clients, she is snuggling with her nine-year-old golden retriever and either reading a good book or occasionally binging a television series. Her current obsession is The Crown on Netflix. That is one that everybody tells me I need to watch and I have not started it yet, but it's definitely on my list of things to watch. But Angie, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful to be here, Heather. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now that was an amazing bio, but is there anything else that you want the audience to know about you? Yeah, I guess uh, what I just want to reemphasize is that I am an ordinary woman who has had a story and has lived a story just like you're living right now. So that is exactly what it is. That's, you know, everybody just has these circumstances that they're given and it's and that's one of the the things that we talk about on here is that like you're not alone everybody has these stories everybody has these circumstances and it's how you perceive them and how you work through them that determines how you come out on the other side so definitely agree with that statement but let's get into you so what was life like growing up um middle school high school age for you you know, life was a pretty, I guess you could say American average or American standard. I grew up in a very nice neighborhood. Um, my neighborhood was one that was, I call it a transitional commu- community. It was larger, I graduated with about six, 700 people. Um, so we had a lot of people, but there was also a dairy farm down the road from me. So it was a farming community that was transitioning into suburban life. Um, and I wouldn't say that there is anything super stranger extraordinary i was on the dance team slash drill team in high school i did competitive speaking um and so from the exterior it was just a very standard teenage years now of course uh what happens internally looks a little differently right and so um part of that is my my family i i like to say my family we loved each other very 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 deeply and uh we all did the best we could with what we had (laughs) but Uh, Part of my story growing up was, uh, you know, there was this joke in the family where I was a little bit of a black sheep. Uh, I was a very independent person. I liked to do what I wanted to do. I was going to do it whether or not anyone agreed with it. And there was this phrase that was very frequently used in my family. And it was, Angie, you are such a terrible or a, a bad child or a bad girl. And when you turn 13, the world's going to end right? Because 13 is this unlucky number. So when you turn 13, the world is going to end. And the irony in all of that, 
Now, listen, if, if you turn 13 and nothing happens, nothing happens and it doesn't mean anything, right? The, the challenge that I ran into through my middle school and high school years is that I was born in 1988 on September 11th at about nine o'clock in the morning. Now, Heather, do you remember where you were on September 11th, uh, 2001, 13 years later, about nine o'clock in the morning? I do. I went to a uh, fine arts center for middle school uh, or elementary school. Actually, I was in elementary school. So we didn't start school till 10 a.m. So I was sitting at home eating, bre eating breakfast with my uh, dad and my sisters. Yeah. And, and of course, the reason I asked that question is everyone I know over the age of, you know, 25 <laughs> at this point. <laughs> knows where they were at nine o'clock on September 11th, 2001, because that's when the towers were hit on live national television. Yeah. You know, the, there's, there's a saying in the, the psychological, not even a saying, it's, it's fact. Um, the subconscious mind learns two ways. It learns through repetition and it learns through trauma. And it just so happens that part of my story includes both because I was told the world was going to end on my 13th birthday. And in very real actuality, even though it had nothing to do with me, the world as we knew it ended on my 13th birthday, almost to the minute that I was born. And so when you have that kind of experience, your relationships, your mind a lot shifts. And so that kind of led me down a path uh, of, of where I started making different choices and believing different things and, and really, you know, landing myself in relationships and in situations that were not healthy. And it's because I had this unhealthy belief system that had been programmed into me for most of my life. Wow. So other than obviously the obvious point, what changed on that day for you? What was like, so you woke up, got ready for school, and then that happened. What was that immediate change that happened for you? I can't even say that it was immediate, right? It's these things that happen over the course of time. And then all of a sudden you look back behind you and you're like, how on God's green earth did I end up here? But one of the things was, you know, your, your subconscious mind for me. And, and if you can't tell just by the way, I've, I've done some therapy about all of this that I can speak about now, like I do, but the, the subconscious mind says, okay, so I was given this fact as a result of something that I did. Right. So I was told that the world was going to end on my 13th birthday because someone didn't approve of who I was or because someone didn't approve of a choice that I was making. So that meant that I started living my life choice by choice based on what everyone else in the world around me wanted, based on what my parents wanted, based on what my teachers wanted, based on what my coaches and dance wanted. And of course, when you are living your life trying to fit into these molds of what everyone else wants you to do, one, you lose yourself incredibly quickly. And two, there's no way to please everyone because everyone wants something different from you. Yeah. So did you become that the, the perfect child, always trying to get straight A's, always trying to be the best competitor? Or did you kind of just like go to the opposite of, of like, I kind of self combustion of like, okay, I can't do any of this. So I'm just going to procrastinate and not show up to these things. I was definitely the first. I was the overachieving golden child. Perfect. Um, in fact, by the time I graduated high school, um, I was competing on my high school's dance team, which, you know, we had practice three, four nights a week. We competed every weekend. Um, I was competing on our high school speech and debate team. So again, I was practicing with them two, three hours a day. 
there's, you know, three, four, five hours a day outside of school that <laughs> you're in all day. Um, and then competing on alternating weekends for that. I was also involved in our high school spirit club. So I was president of that, uh, was in a bunch of AP and honors classes and, and aiming for A's and B's. And let me tell you about the fits that I used to throw when I got a B in a classroom because I just wanted again, you're be, you're holding yourself to this impossible standard because you believe that if you do something bad, the world will end. So what did college look like for you then? You know, because on a not and nobody has a normal childhood. I am quickly finding out nobody has it. But like the normal childhood, you graduate and then life changes in college, right? Like where either you you had, you know, s- super strict parents. And so you become this wild child or uh, you had like, you know, maybe in your case, you did all these straight A things and now you're like, again, the wild child or not, you know, like it, it just is so different for everybody. So what was college like for you that that first semester year? So for me, college was a lot more of the same for me uh, in, in some ways. Uh, and in other ways, it was a little bit different. I, I picked and chose where I rebelled and where I stayed the same. So how I stayed the same was still way over committing my life again, because I wanted to do all of these things and felt like I had to prove something to do all of these things because of that pattern and that belief system that I built for myself. So when I was in college, um, I had a scholarship. So I was taking 15 credit hours. I think that uh, standard credit hours is between 10 and 12 a semester. So I was already accepting the scholarship, doing above average and, and more than than what was normally expected. Uh, I competed with our college mock trial team. So that was a lot of practicing and, and training. And then I also joined a sorority. So that was a huge time commitment there. Um, I eventually, I think by my sophomore year, I was in student government. So I was also representing our student body and doing all of the pieces that come with that. And by my junior year, I had joined the political science honors fraternity and then my senior year became president of that. So yeah, again, it was more of the same. I was taking on a lot of leadership roles. I was taking on a lot more than I could chew. I was still trying to maintain Dean's list and honor roles in all of my classes and really burning myself out. I mean, by by, by the time I realized what I was doing, which ironically wasn't for about four years after graduation, I didn't even realize how much I had burned my body out just because you keep going when you're, when you're in a mode of survival, whether that's because you physically have to survive because you don't have money, you don't have food, or if you're in a physically abusive, I I think, you know, that was not part of my story, fortunately. But if you're in that constant survival mode, like your adrenaline and your, your, your body will keep you going. It'll keep you fighting for survival. And so even when you're in that false sense of survival, your body will keep fighting this perceived thing, right? This perceived giant of if I do something wrong, if I'm a bad person, if I make a wrong decision, if I don't please these people, the world is going to end. That's a big thing. And your body will do a lot to keep you going to prevent that perceived monster from getting you. Yeah. And, you know, you said that you've done a lot of therapy and worked through a lot of these things looking back. Is there also that sense of like, if I slow down and don't do something like that, you're going to have to face what you're going through as well. Like you're going to have to actually sit down and face the trauma that you've already, that you've been through. You know, I, maybe, 
I don't even know that that would have crossed my mind as far as facing it because I didn't even realize that it was trauma until I was probably like 23 or 24. I mean, I remember sitting down with one of my, my coaching friends and, and, and she asked me this question, why don't you celebrate your birthday on your birthday? Because up until about like two years ago, <laughs> I would pick a random day in the fall and celebrate my birthday on that day because I just couldn't bring myself to celebrate or be celebrated on my birthday. And she asked why that was. And she, she said, okay, like, let's, let's stop for a minute. (laughs) That's not normal. And no, there is no normal, but like, maybe we should look into why, what this, what this has happened and and snowballed into a lot of that. Wow. So you had this conversation at 23, 24 had, you know, uh, before we started recording, you said that you had, you know, you put yourself into these abusive situation, uh, relationships, were those prior to this conversation or after that conversation? Prior to, by the time I had that conversation, uh, I was already married and I had a lot of friendships, even, even friendships that I had from college that were, were toxic. Of course, my, my former marriage, very, very toxic. I know we're going to be talking about that shortly, I'm sure, since it's part of our <laughs> why I'm here. Uh, and so it really was like that. Uh, what That was one of the eye-opening experiences that I had where I, I finally was able to step out of the frame and the picture that I had created for myself and look at the painting and say, oh, <laughs> you know, and, and it's one of those, like you look at the painting and then you look at how, how all, at the, the palette that you've used to paint this painting and you say, how did I start with this idea of what I wanted to create and end up with this mess? We're in your first year of college and burnout is setting in. How did you cope socially? You said you were in a sorority. Mm -hmm. And so like that, as you just mentioned, toxic (laughs) friendships can immerse from those types of situations. Were you in a relationship in college? Is that where you met your boy or your ex-husband? How did all of that kind of come to fruition? You know, I had time. It wasn't just the sorority by any stretch of the imagination. There were a lot of toxic relationships that I had in, in college and, and in a lot of the organizations that I was involved in. And so um, how, how I coped. So I, um, I did cope a little bit with a social you know, the social scene in college. Um, you know, I certainly dabbled with the, uh, the drinking and, and whatnot, but um you know, really my coping mechanism was just being so busy that I couldn't help but keep moving. By keeping a full calendar, I didn't have to deal. That that was my ultimate coping mechanism. And then the achievement, the thrill and the adrenaline rush of achievement, let, of taking over as captain of my mock trial team and serving in that role for three years. Um, at the time that I had taken over captain of my team, I was the youngest mock trial captain that the school had had. I mean, that was a pretty cool badge of honor. Uh, and so see, always seeking that next badge, almost like a, 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 a deranged overage Girl Scout. <laughs> and I was a Girl Scout. So like, I love the Girl Scouts. It's a great empowerment uh, organization. I certainly am not, but, but anything that's good can, can be bad. And, and that, that was definitely where I was always seeking that next badge of honor to throw on my sash. And, and so that's how I coped. Uh, and, and that is also part of that coping. I did have a number of relationships. I de- definitely was seeking that validation in a very unhealthy way through my relationships. So always looking for someone who 
you know, and I'm reflecting now on a couple of the relationships that I had. So some of the relationships that I had were relationships where I was trying to uh, have someone love me because I couldn't love myself was a big piece of it. Some of, one of the relationships that I was in was just, I, I, I don't even know how to, how to describe it. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it was, um, you know, just like I, I, I almost needed someone to be with just because I couldn't handle the idea of doing all of uh, whatever alone. And, and one of the relationships that I had was also one of those like badge of honor pieces. You know, the guy that I, I was seeing at one point was um, significantly older than I was, uh, was very well established in the military. So he had a lot of, you know, the, the ranks and, and various, you know, he was a, a good guy on paper, right? Um, and so, you know, being the person that's with that person, uh, gave you a sense of, gave me a sense of validation. Definitely. And unfortunately the inability to love yourself attracts narcissists and, and that, uh, right. And the, we are talking about my ex-husband <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and the, the, um, the needing validation, right? Because they're so charming. They're so willing to give that validation to suck you into that relationship. And when you are at a point in your life where you can't love yourself and you don't know how to start that journey of loving yourself, like they are just like moths to a light bulb when it comes to that. And it's unfortunate because it's like, you wish you could you and, and and a lot of times it's like you see it coming but you don't at the same time you're like this is there's a lot of red flags here but this green flag's really good so i'm gonna ignore all these red flags <laughs> yeah and you know what is so interesting is um i can look back and i can be like that's a red flag that's a red flag that's a red flag but at the time the red flags were popping up they weren't even flags like i i just i didn't even have the peripheral vision far enough and wide enough to see the red flags because I had such blinders on because I didn't know what I was looking for. So I couldn't see them. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's interesting because you say all this about the, the journey of loving yourself. And, and I could throw in stories about professional relationships where when I was going through this journey, same thing, I, because I needed the external validation because I couldn't love myself uh, the way that I needed to be loved. I, you attract them in all different ways. It's not, it's not just your personal relationships. You'll, you'll keep attracting them until you figure out what it is that you need to do for yourself. Yeah. That, that isn't coming in like the moth to the flame, like what you had said. Yeah. Yeah. So how did the, the relationship start? Had, was it after college or you already graduated or, you know, what was that the beginning of that relationship? Because a lot of times it's amazing, right? Like that first two weeks to three months is like, the most amazing thing. And it's so hard at that beginning stage to know what it's going to turn into. But then again, like that whole, it's too good to be true thing is also there. So I kind of want to go into what was that like? How did you guys meet? And then what were those first few months like? Yeah. So when we met, I was a senior in college. He had already graduated and we met at a bar as I think is pretty standard for a lot of people who meet in college. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we met at a bar through some mutual friends. And I would say really the beginning of our relationship, there was a lot of uh, good stuff. You know, I really like, even when I look back on our relationship, the first red flags that I can easily identify really didn't appear until after we were married. Now, part of the reason that is, is because 
we dated for six months <laughs> before we got engaged. And then the year that we were engaged before we got married, we lived in two separate states. So there was a lot of very quickness that happened early on. So there wasn't a lot of time for the red flags. And I was a senior in college. So I was getting ready for graduation and going through that whole whole process. And then so like the the being together all of the time and the the having some some concerns, uh, we didn't really have an opportunity to manifest itself until after we'd already, you know, signed the deal. Yeah, definitely. So I've had stories that, you know, that women have come on and told where it was like overnight, like the the wedding night. It, things started happening, but then there's also where it was just kind of very gradual of these little tiny things that were like, you've never done that before. That was weird. And they kind of brush it off and then it keeps happening. Where do you kind of fall on that spectrum of things? It was very gradual over the course of time. And I it, almost when I look back at the story of our, our marriage, it was almost like a hockey stick where... <laughs> happened very, very slowly. And then there was this sharp pivot, boom. And then it started happening a lot, a lot more. I remember it was the first, the first red flag that I can think of was probably, it had to have been within the first two months of our marriage. We were having an argument, which is very normal in a marriage, right? Like part of the things that you should learn in premarital counseling is how to have a healthy, safe argument. Yes. (laughs) And I remember, um, I don't even remember what we were arguing about. I'm sure it was something stupid because that's how it is in marriage. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, he, he said something. I, the first part, I'm a little fuzzy on the back end. I definitely remember. It was something to the effect of you, you, you should, if you even want to think about leaving this or if you're already done, like good luck finding another partner, you're you're not going to find anyone else who's going to love you like I do. And then this is the part that I remember clear as day. Besides you're a fat, ugly whale. So no one's going to love you. And it's one of those, that's a new one. That's not, uh, that's not fair. (laughs) And you can say that looking back in the moment, of course, you're just so shocked. And, and again, the second red flag was within 24 hours of that argument. uh, At that point I had been wanting to get a puppy. And so within 24 hours, he had contacted a breeder and had found a litter of dogs that we could go pick up that weekend, right? It was the, the, I'm sorry, in a very, very extravagant way without ever actually saying, I'm sorry. Right. Right. And that's actually the nine-year-old golden retriever that you spoke about in my bio. That's <laughs> So one good thing came of this. Yes. <laughs> it's one of the good things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why I can remember like that happened within the first two months of our marriage because I remember going and, and getting her. And then, you know, it, it, it would just be little, little things like that. And, and, and yeah. things that, you know, I remember that one so clearly because it obviously ended up in us getting a dog. <laughs> but other instances, I, I, I couldn't pinpoint stories just because they were so small and they didn't seem so significant. And it just it was like one piece of straw at a time. And and then all of a sudden he just took a bin and then started piling it on. Yeah. Yeah. When people think of domestic violence, they immediately go to the physical abuse. And that's kind of the educational piece that we bring is that majority of domestic violence is nonviolent. It's 
very manipulative, control, emotional, um, psychological, and, and that type of abuse. It's it's not the hitting because that that's easy to say. I'll never let somebody hit me, right? It's easy to say I will a hundred percent walk away if somebody ever laid a hand on me. What's not easy to do is walk away when somebody just kind of like nitpicks at you and just kind of like gradually over time brings your self-confidence down. And, and that is, you know, the that's the main form of abuse because it's control. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple things I'll say on that too. The other thing that was so destructive that I didn't realize he was doing until towards the end when I was getting ready to go was how much he had eroded the ability for me to trust myself. And that is one of the hardest things. It's something that I'm still, we got divorced almost five years ago. It's something that I still am constantly working on is if I hear something and then all of a sudden I feel like I have to have evidence to prove that it happened. Okay. Ooh, that's like, and even if it, and you know, whether it's trying to prove it to myself or prove it to someone else, you know, that that's, that's still a symptom of how much my inner confidence had been destroyed in those years that I was, was there. And the other thing, something that again, a coach uh, has shared with me as, as part of my working with a coach is when you look at physical domestic violence, part, part of the other piece of the story, like what you were describing is, is if someone punches you and sees a bruise on your face, someone's going to ask a question and someone's going to find a way to jump in and help right? Like even those women who are in scenarios where they, they say that I fell down the stairs, I, all those things that are very, very traditional in those domestic, physical domestic violence situations, uh, people see something and they start acting in one way, shape or form. It may not happen overnight, but there, there's this like rallying cry, right? But when you're being emotionally abused, when your confidence is being eroded or when you're being nitpicked and you're, 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 your self-esteem is being torn down. There's no bruise for anyone to see. You walk out the front door and you put a smile on your face and you do what you have to do to survive on a daily basis. And no one knows what's going on. So there is no rallying cry from your village to protect you. You just have to protect yourself. And that's the hard part of being on the outside looking in is, you know, is sometimes you can see it, but it's also that like, that's not my business. I don't want to seem full, you know, like I'm putting myself in to your relationship, right? Because sometimes it will be that you just had a really bad fight, right? There, and, and, and that's something else that, you know, over the past couple of months that I've tried to also bring into this is that fighting, like you said earlier, in marriage is normal, right? There's a healthy way to do it though, but it's still normal. Marriage is hard. Marriage is work. And you're going to have disagreements. And especially when you bring kids into the mix, you know, you're, you're going to have all of these things that just kind of like y you have to discuss and you're not going to agree on everything hundred percent of the time. So, you know, there could be times where it's just like, oh, we had a really bad fight last night and I'm just kind of not myself. Like I'm just trying to work through it myself. So then you don't want to like overstep your boundaries and dig into that because it, again, it is none of your business at that point because it, it is, you know, just intermarital. But then at some point, like when does it become your business because somebody is being hurt? And that's the hard part. That's where you, you, you can't really figure it out. 
If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O, thriving, A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org.